This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What lessons are we learning in the COVID pandemic and what lessons are we teaching in our schools? That's the topic today. Greetings, you're on Deep Background. Well, greetings. You're on a delayed deep background for December 8th, 2020. We may go in hiatus for a little bit of time, but we always come back. And that's what we're doing here with two great reporters for the Star uh, joining us. First, as always, Derek Donovan, my colleague on the editorial board, uh, is part of the program. And then two reporters, Marae Rose Williams of the Star and Sarah Ritter of the Star. And we're going to talk a little bit about education today in the wake of COVID. They've been working on various parts of this story for some time. And, and uh, I, I, you know, my own view is it's the most, one of the most important um, issues related to COVID is how we've handled education, both K through 12 and, and higher education. And Marae, let's start with you. I, I, well, I was talking with the Ed Board the other day about, you know, it's, at some point we're going to start writing lessons learned stories. And, uh, you know, we're in the middle of the pandemic still, so maybe it's a bit early for that. But it seems pretty clear to me that one of the lessons learned was that the assumption that we could so simply easily transition from in-person learning to online learning was deeply wrong. Is that what you think we're going to discover six months, eight months from now, Murray, when we think back about this, that all of our assumptions that the 21st century would be online for schools is probably not right. Yeah, I think that's right to some degree, David. I think that um, I was just having a conversation with a, a retired teacher who just retired. And one of the things we talked about was this very issue and um, she says that her, she and her colleagues seem to believe that it's not so much that we can't do the online learning. That's possible. The problem is that they're doing 19th century um, instruction, met methodology of instruction on a 21st century platform. And that is what does not work. That's fascinating to me, Marae, because yeah. the, what you're saying is the idea of a teacher standing in front of a blackboard or behind a desk or at a, a lecture podium, which has been part of education for 150 years, it won't work in, in, in a digital setting. Yes, and I think that's what they're discovering. And what the, I think what they're discovering is that they have got to change the entire method in which they approach teaching. So there's some major changes that have to change so that online learning can work. It can work, but you know, with COVID having happened so quickly and the way they pivoted so quickly, they took what they had and moved it online and they're finding that there are holes and, and it's lacking. And they have to figure out a way to use that platform, but they're going to have to change a lot of the methodology and, and the pedagogy and the way that they approach teaching holistically. 
Yeah, Sarah, you've covered school boards and school districts have wrestled with this just enormously, haven't they? Trying to figure out a way to make this work. I don't think anyone anticipated, by the way, that it would still be online learning or some hybrid would still be an issue in December of 2020. I think everyone, my own recollection is that when, when everything shut down back in March, people figured, okay, by the end of the semester, we can use the summer to figure this out and then go back into the classroom. That hasn't turned out to be the case. So what, what lessons are administrators learning, do you think, Sarah, in, in the districts you've covered? Or, or, or is it very much a week-to-week, -week, you know, what's going to work now, what hasn't worked, that type of thing? Yeah, I think Marae's exactly right, that they really are kind of rethinking how we grade, how we you know, sort of expect students to reach certain benchmarks, what we expect of teachers. I think, you know, teachers feel if you're going to expect this sort of flexibility out of me that I can go in a matter of weeks from in-person to remote, then administration should really offer some more flexibility for us as well. And um, so I think Mariah's exactly right that they are kind of rethinking sort of how we grade students, how they move through grade levels, and, you know, in Kansas for a while, they've been rethinking this a little bit, moving toward more individualized learning plans. And I think that's something that, you know, educators in Kansas at least see for the future is that we're going to offer a little bit more flexibility. Hopefully it will address, address some of these inequities that have existed for a really long time where, you know, if a student is an English language learner or has different needs, they might be at a different level. And maybe we can offer a little bit more flexibility for both teachers and students as they move ahead. But that's going to be harder to do that, isn't it, Sarah? I mean, that you know, individual learning plans digitally based seems, you know, much different than the, the idea, traditional idea of standing at a blackboard, having, you know, going through a year, taking lessons. I'm just rem remembering my own experience. And it was pretty, you know, we had 32, 33 kids in every class. And the teachers all sort of taught the same thing over and over and over in math and English or whatever. Individualized instruction, digitally based, it will be harder and one thinks more expensive. Yeah, yeah. And I think teachers will, and administrators too probably will be honest that this has been the goal in Kansas for a few years and it's the goal now during the pandemic, but is it really happening? Maybe not so much. And, you know, it is really difficult to transition to something like that. And how involved is it? Is it just sitting down with each student at the beginning of the year and here's a plan and here's what your career goals are and here are some classes you should take to get there and here's kind of where your benchmarks are or is it really rethinking standardized tests and these things that are so fundamental to public education as we know it. And so, you know, Marae might know more about it too, but yeah, I think teachers will be honest that, you know, on paper, that's what they say they're doing. I don't know if it's really playing out yet. And Marae, and you go ahead, you, you, because you have all kinds of problems, Marae, don't you still, with fairness, equity, access to online learning? I mean, that's the other part of the equation that needs to be dealt with. Yeah, I think that really what this has done is just, it has just sort of poked the bear a little bit um, and forced them to start thinking about the possibility. I mean, I think that most of the teachers, even administrators that I talk to, like Sarah said, will say, okay, this was just a temporary kind of thing. This is not where we are yet. We're not anywhere close to being able to completely deliver education to students on an ongoing basis, year after year in this, in this way. But it has given them 
said that it, it's something that is doable, but we have a lot of work before we get there. I mean, something as simple as taking attendance, you know, and, and, and holding kids accountable for being in class and being engaged. They haven't even figured that out yet. And I don't think they're going to figure it out before this is all said and done, but they will be able to start forming committees and start looking at the possibilities and what needs to change and how can this be done. And it will serve them. Um, one of the things we talked about, you talk about lessons learned. We were talking about um, snow days. You know, this might be something that they can do on a, you know, oh, today we're going to go online. But in terms of long term, they're not there yet and they won't be there for some time. But don't we also have to, Murray, don't we also have to get a better handle on what this experience has meant for the current cohort of students? I mean, you know, as they're redesigning all of this or rethinking it, you've got kids now who have literally spent a year of their educational lives in this bizarre, less than optimal situation. And, the, you know, that it could set some kids back years yes. as they go, as they return to traditional schooling. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's what Sarah and I just wrote about is that, yeah. you know, a lot of the experts are these COVID kids um, and, you know, there will be a significant number of kids and no one's, well, there are a few people saying that are denying it, but many people are uh, agree that there will be a huge swath of children who will not recover from this, particularly those students who are at the latter end of, of, of their education, of their K-12 education. Um, and for some of these kids, even the earlier ones in um, elementary school at benchmark grade levels, where um, everything that they learned from here on is building on what they were supposed to have gotten in this past year that they may have missed out on, will be having to try to play catch up for some time. They equate it to what happened in Katrina with Katrina, where there were kids that it took two years for them to recoup the loss, the educational loss that they suffered when schools shut down after Katrina. So yes, there are kids who may never... And, and Sarah, you know, two years, if you're in third grade, maybe you, you've got some, but if you're, as Marais suggests, a sophomore or a junior in high school, a two-year lag, it, it, it's not fatal, obviously, but it's horrible, just horrible to contemplate. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we talked to some students who are there, juniors and seniors, and they, you know, said, I might need a gap year just to study on my own, just to take some, maybe take some classes here and there and feel more prepared because they really are worried that they're not going to be prepared for college. And um, I interviewed one teacher who said, you know, even kindergartners right now, they're not getting the foundations that they typically would. And that's going to stick with them through the rest of their K through 12 education. And she argued that, you know, this we won't stop feeling the impacts of this until those kindergartners graduate high school. Yeah, but the other, Sarah, just talk about this and then Murray. But the other side of that coin is if we think or thought at any time that kindergartners could get a quality educational experience online, that was delusional in a way, wasn't it? I mean, you, you know, having five-year-olds sit in front of a screen for four or five hours, I mean, the whole point of kindergarten is is socialization and you know learning how to share and all those other things these sort of human qualities as well as how to read and write um and it, it's it you know this extraordinary circumstance 
it seems to me we were we were not thinking straight when we thought kindergartners will be just fine. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true, and I think it was a rude awakening for you know parents to realize, oh, I'm now my kid's teacher in a lot of ways, and they're not getting that extra adult figure in their life to teach them the things that you know I'm not qualified to teach them, and. You know, you also think about all the economic impacts of it, of, te- of parents needing to leave their jobs or take leave and, um, you know, just to do daycare and basic babysitting while their kid is online. So a lot of elementary students are still in school in Johns County right now, but we're questioning whether that's going to last with COVID numbers the way that they are. Yeah, and yeah so it is really, really hard for those younger kids. What about teachers, Murray? Are, are t- uh, your teachers, you know, a lot of them are quitting they weren't trained for this. You know, the whole point is interaction with students that they don't get. Uh, what, what, do we have to restructure that? I mean, we already had a bit of a problem recruiting teachers, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot has been asked of teachers. I mean, first of all, the initial pivot um, with, you know, rapid training, um, some not nearly getting the training that they that they they really felt they needed to do this job the way they wanted to do the job, the way they got into this industry to do the job. Um, and um, a lot of them have been discouraged um, by that. But then also there's the whole health issue as well um, that you know teachers are getting sick. Um, and so you've got older teachers who were maybe close to retirement who are like, you know, I didn't sign on for this and I'm almost done and I can't take this. So they're leaving. Um, and then there's the question of our teachers, our young people going into the field at the, at the rate right. E2. So, yeah, there is a problem. We're really uh, coming on a major teacher shortage, and I think that's going to be a big problem going forward. It's, it is a problem already. In fact, some of the schools that are shutting down are not so much shutting down because they can't do the job anymore, but they're shutting down because they don't have the staff. Don't we, don't we have to think a little bit too, Murray, and then I'll go to you, Sarah, uh, uh, about how buildings are configured and, and what safety provisions are made going forward and ventilation in schools. Some of the older buildings is just horrifically bad. Uh, you know, your exposures are heightened, separation between desks. I mean, all of that has to be thought about too, doesn't it? I, I think I think so, but I don't. I mean, I don't think that that's primary for the for, for the schools right now. Is thinking about the you know because you, they think of this as this is a one time the likelihood that we're going to run into another pandemic anytime in the future near future is is slim. And so what what they do have to figure out is how to, I mean, they've spent millions and millions of dollars on technology and platforms and all this stuff. So how are we going to use this? How are we going to learn from this to continue to teach these students? How are we going to provide the remedial that these kids are going to need so that they're not so far behind, so that the dropout rate doesn't go through the roof, which it is likely to do? Um, so, yes, building construction is, is going to be an issue going forward, and there will be people making lots of money off of that. But first and foremost, they've got to make up the difference in the loss in education um, that these students have um, endured after but, this. But, uh, Sarah, let's, uh, one more question. We'll go to a break. It, it seems uh, for all of this discussion that the worst mistake anyone could make was, would be to say, well, the pandemic's over. Let's go back to the way things were. 
whether that's buildings or teaching. I mean, it will be extraordinarily important, it seems to me, for people who run the schools to understand what we just went through. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't think there's any administrator out there who's saying we can really go back to the way things were and things are permanently going to change. Hopefully for the better where we do address some of these inequities and speaking of, you know, classroom configuration, I know teachers would definitely want smaller class sizes and as schools are rebuilt, maybe there are ways we can rethink through some of those things so it is easier in the future something like this ever happens again. But yeah, I think everything from how education is delivered to how teachers are treated to what's expected of students um, will probably change on some level. All right, great. Let's take a break. We come back, we'll explore a a few more uh, parts of this story. Uh, I'm Dave Helling with The Star. You're on Deep Background. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey there, this is Derek Donovan of the Kansas City Star Editorial Board, and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at the Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it. Head to kansascity.com slash background. You'll even get a special discount just for being a deep background listener. By subscribing at that URL, you will get three months of unlimited digital access to the star for $1.99 total. That's right. You get access to kansascity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, our mobile apps, and more for three whole months, and it only costs you $1.99. That's a pretty sweet deal. Plus, you will be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. So, go grab your computer or mobile device and head to kansascity.com slash background. And hey, thanks for listening. Dave Helling with the Stars Editorial Board. Derek Donovan with the Stars Editorial Board. Back with you on Deep Background. Reporters Sarah Ritter and Murray Rose Williams with us as well. Um, Sarah, let's start with you. One of the, I'm always interested beyond just what happens in the classroom as to how these decisions are reached politically. And there's been an enormous fight, as you know, over whether schools should be open or closed, sports or not sports, uh, whether kids are at risk, not at risk. Um, um, do we, have we learned anything there, or is that sort of an uh, uneasy piece now? I mean, because you do see districts still wrestling with this. In fact, in some ways, wrestling with it more than they were back in March and April. I remember people saying, boy, if we're ever in the red zone, we've got to shut the schools down. We've been in the red zone for weeks now, and the schools are not shut down. So so what are we to understand in your mind about the process of making those kinds of decisions, how well it's worked or not worked? Yeah, yeah. That's definitely something that I know has been really frustrating for teachers and parents both of we're in the red zone from the beginning we've said we're going to shut down everything if we're in this zone and public health officials have said like we've learned across the country early research is showing that in school transmission if you have masks and regular hand washing and social distancing and all these protocols can be relatively low and school districts have done a pretty good job of 
reducing in-school transmission. But the problem is at the same time, we've had outside transmission just skyrocket record levels higher than we've ever seen, higher than public health officials ever thought we would see in Johnson County at least. And that's making its way into the schools. And the people who are most affected are the teachers. So like Marae said, schools are shutting down, not because of the reasons we originally thought of, oh, in-school transmission is going to be so terrible. It's because teachers are coming in or calling in sick because they are testing positive. They're you know, hundreds of teachers, thousands of teachers are quarantined, thousands of students are quarantined and isolated after testing positive or being exposed, and the impact that that's having on attendance and just teachers' ability to show up and staffing problems and staffing substitutes and cafeteria workers and bus drivers, every level is affected in schools right now. And that's the question of whether elementary will be able to stay in person where they are because we you know, this might just continue getting as bad as it's, you know, continue getting worse where we have fewer and fewer subs and fewer teachers. And, you know, you talk about the educational impacts of that. Also, you have principal subbing and, you know, people, teachers using their lunch breaks to sub an extra class and just that's not sustainable. And so, yeah, we've definitely learned a lot um, and we're continuing to learn, but it's definitely frustrating for people when you think you know something, and then a, a month from now, it's going to change. Well, not only that, Murray, but but it, it seems to change, you know, sort of week to week. We're open. No, we're closed. No, we'll let the elementary kids in. No, we're closing for everybody. No, we're okay for sports, but no parents in the stands. Well, that'll be okay. I mean, the confusion around the decision-making process and the conflicting or contradictory responses have also been a frustration, it seems, for parents and for the teachers and administrators alike. And it's not just it is it's not just in one district. You know, part of the problem is that there is no blanket policy. There's no state level policy about how they are going to open or close schools, when they will open or close schools, and what will cause us let lead to a school's closing down. So you get this district to district. So you can have districts who are uh, adjacent to one another and have completely different policies for when they close and when they open. So it's, it's, um, it is very frustrating for teachers and for parents. Um, I think that part of that is political too. I think there's a lot of politics involved with the states not, um, state education agencies not wanting to take the responsibility to be, to say, this is what's going to happen across the board, across the state. And yes, I totally get that each district is, is different to some degree, but because of the lack of that kind of a policy, you've got all these different policies in districts and everybody's doing something different or slightly different opening. So uh, yeah, there is no consistency. Um, and that may be something that changes too. I don't know if that is something that, you know, when this passes, that they will decide, start to make some blanket decisions about how schools will function under circumstances like this. Right, and, and, and just to give administrators a bit of a, of a break um, and, and school boards, you know, nobody precisely knows what to do or knew what to do. I mean, it's fair to say that we're all sort of reaching in, in all of our lives for what's acceptable risk, isn't acceptable risk, when you put your own children in the middle of that, uh, that, that makes the decisions that much more difficult and fraught. Right, Murray? 
Yeah, that, that absolutely. <clears throat> and, and, you know, with absent of, a, uh, of any type of a blanket policy, you get some parents who feel um, cert- one way about it, right. feel another way about it. Um, and so then you get these, that's thrown into the mix. I, I don't want to put my child at risk. Um, I, I've got um, grandparents at home with some, you know, pre-existing conditions. So I'm just going to keep my kid home. Sarah's sending her kids to school. I mean, it's just all over the place. And it makes for a very difficult, it makes it very difficult for the schools basically to harness this all in. Um, so they, you know, I'm not saying they don't have a, very challenging um, position. They're not, they're in a very challenging position. Yeah, no question about that. And you're so right that it's intricate too. It isn't just teachers, it's buildings, it's cafeterias, it's buses, it's all the other parts of the moving parts of a educational experience. Uh, uh, But Sarah, one of the things I think we're learning or maybe we're seeing exposed in in an interesting and potentially uncomfortable way is that parents depend on schools, not just to teach their kids, but to watch them. Which I, I know teachers have resisted, you know, and, and, and rightly so, the idea that somehow they have a, a child care function. But that's the other part of this, you know, quadrangular equation, <laughs> quadratic equation, that parents depend on schools so they can work and do other things. How do we how do we understand that going forward? I mean, do we, you know, that that that's another part of the decision making process that seems very very difficult and intricate to me. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, you think about all of the resources that schools provide students. Um, you know, after school programs. That's also a form of daycare, food on a regular basis, free and reduced lunches. Um, you know, access to healthcare, access to a school nurse, access to a social worker. Um, there are so many services. And I feel like teachers, you know, are frustrated at that idea of parents just want us to be their babysitters and parents feeling pitted against teachers a little bit in this. But I think that's exactly right that, you know, teachers really have been sort of this catch all for so many things that kids need. And, you know, you look at other countries where they really focused on keeping schools open and they closed the bars and the entertainment facilities and things like that. We did not do that here in Kansas or Missouri. And, you know, you do wonder how things might be different if you really focused on keeping schools open because of the important role they play in the economy. And then, you know, mitigating the crowd sizes and things that we're starting to kind of go back to now a little bit. Um, But yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. I do think that one of the things you're talking about, um, what might change is they may start looking at, like Sarah said, you know, schools have been this catch-all, um, and they may start looking at how to separate out some of those services um, that schools have been responsible for for so many years. I mean, you know this, David, year after year, um, over decades, Schools have become more, they put more and more and more on the schools to be responsible for the health care and the mental health and food and just so many other areas that if they, they may start looking at how to separate some of those things out so that they can focus on instruction, which is yeah. what their primary um, goal is, is to teach these students. Right, right. And if we're writing down lessons learned, clearly one of the lessons 
we've all uh, uh, now understand that maybe we didn't in another way is how integral education is to our lives. I mean, it, it isn't just something that the kids go to school when they turn five and get out when they're 18, uh, at least K through 12, that it's intricately woven with how our society works and we need to pay a lot of attention to it going forward. A couple of final questions and we'll wrap up. Maureen, let me start with you. There, there is a, uh, uh, is there not, there is a, an element of, of uh, economic equity here too. Poorer schools, poorer districts face challenges in ways that maybe richer districts don't. Access to high-speed internet, certainly. Uh, you know, the teachers experience, maybe you in some of the poorer districts you have maybe older teachers or teachers less familiar with technology in many, in many ways. That's another thing we have to think about, isn't it? And work out how do we have broad equity? And, and by the way, not just economic, but geographically. I mean, urban districts have resources that maybe you don't have in a county of 1,000 people or 5,000 people. Th those, those questions remain unanswered. Right. I mean, you get some of the inequities both on the urban side as well as you do the same kinds of inequities that you would on the rural side, regardless of the economic status of the household. You know, you, you'll find some of the same types of inequities. Um, and I mean, you look at also it could be parents, too. I mean, you're talking about um, having students at home where there is a parent who, because of their, their economic set, they have to work, right? right? So they're leaving and then that child, what do you do with that child? They're working to pay the or bill. Or children, or children. Or I mean, we think, you know, Absolutely. the assumption is always one kid. It might be three or four kids in a in a Absolutely, in very age groups, and they may be younger kids, and you can't afford daycare because that's, they went to school, so you can't afford the daycare. What do you do with these children? These children are left at home. I mean, there's that aspect. There's also the aspect of maybe that parent um, did not get a high school education or does not have a college education, and you're asking that parent to supplement the, the instruction for that child, and they're, they're unable to do that, so there's an inequity there. Right. Um, the, the level of inequity is tremendous, and I think that in a lot of districts, they, they knew there was some inequity, but I don't think that they recognize how expansive the inequity was in, or is in their district. And that, and that was a huge eye-opener for many districts, not just the urban districts, but also many of the suburban districts who didn't realize they had such inequities in their districts as well. All right. Well, let's wrap up our conversation, Sarah. I'll start with you and then go to Murray. Let's focus a little bit on the, on the immediate future what, what are the next six months going to look at in the schools that you've been talking with, Sarah? I mean, are we, are we still in this weird hybrid, do you think, in January and February? Can seniors look forward to an in-person uh, graduation in May that, they, that seniors didn't get last May? Some of that obviously involves the vaccine and, and mitigation, but, but just broadly speaking, are we looking at another six months of of uncertainty, or do we think that there is, to use a cliche, light at the end of this particular tunnel? Well, I do think the good news is that teachers and administrators have gotten so much better at navigating this than compared to last spring. Teachers will be honest, last spring was kind of a wash for education, and I think they are starting to get it down, where if we are still in this hybrid, weird, we don't know one week from the next what's going to happen, that teachers can transition a lot quicker um, but I think 
it's pretty much understood that the rest of the school year, at least, is going to be mostly online, hybrid. It really depends on if the community, you know, gets its act together, wears masks, social distances, if businesses take this seriously. Um, you know, I don't know that anybody's super hopeful for an in-person graduation. I don't know if you've heard anything, Marae, but, you know, I've talked to seniors who they wonder if they'll be online for college next fall. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's not very optimistic, but, um, you know, I think the rest of the school year, teachers are at least preparing um, for us to continue kind of this back and forth hybrid weird situation we're in right now. Marae, your view, and then we'll wrap it up. I'm a little more optimistic than you, Sarah. Um, I do think that we might actually see some in-person graduations this year. I do think that, um, that that's a possibility. I don't know about proms, but um, I think we might actually see some in-person graduations. And I, I don't believe that colleges will be fully in-person next year. I think that the seniors can probably look forward to actually going to um, in-person classes or at least more in-person classes by the time they get to college. Um, so I think that's the good news. Um, you know, it does remain to be seen. It does have a lot to do with what happens with the virus, but um, I'm crossing my fingers. We're all crossing our fingers, Murray. We have been for a year, haven't we? Murray, Rose Williams, Sarah Ritter with The Star, Derek Donovan, my colleague with The Star's editorial board. Thanks, you guys, for being with us for this important conversation, which we'll have again as we get into the new year. I'm Dave Helling with The Star's editorial board. You've been on Deep Background.